You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Even a casual look back through the pages of history shows conclusively that mankind can be counted on to repeat mistakes which one would think outside the realms of common sense. After the catastrophic events in Europe during the Great War, it seems inconceivable that the continent could once again be plunged into chaos little more than two decades after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, bringing to a conclusion the war which would supposedly end all wars. But away from physical battlefields, Mankind has a history of making poor decisions of a financial nature, particularly when society comes under strain, and those strains, more often than not, occur at the end of a debt supercycle. At these inflection points, those decisions, taken in the national interest, can quickly spiral out of control and lead to unforeseen outcomes. The recent moves on the part of the Trump White House to defend America's national interest look eerily familiar. This week, on adventures in finance, tariffs, and trade wars. Today is the 8th of March 2018, and welcome everybody to episode 57 of Adventures in Finance. Coming to you from San Diego this week, which is uh, a beautiful city. If you haven't been, I would stick it on your bucket list. And back on the East Coast in New York in the cold and the dark, uh, producer James and Alex. Come in, fellas. You there? Hey, Grant. Grant, how's it going, buddy? It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, uh, it's San Diego. Anyone that's been knows exactly what, uh, what I'm talking about. And anyone that hasn't been should go. It's, uh, it's a very, very amenable place to be, I have to say. I kind of feel like I got a little bit uh, gypped by being sent to New York in winter when maybe I should have just been sent to San Diego with you. Yeah, you, you, you got totally gypped. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know what to tell you, James. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Next time you need to uh, put your hand up for the San Diego trip and not the New York trip. <laughs> That's just the way these things work. Uh, now, this week we've got lots to get to. Lots to get to. Um, we are going to talk this week about trade wars and tariffs and all that good stuff that's been going on in the last week or so um, with a view to trying to figure out not necessarily what this particular um, tariffs mean for the steel industry that President Trump has imposed this week, but more to get a sense of a historical perspective of what trade wars and what tariffs tend to mean. And we've got two fantastic guests this week. We have a geopolitical consultant, Peter Zihan, who I 
Uh, spent some time with him in Cape Town a couple of weeks ago. He's a, he's a lovely guy and uh, a very smart commentator on these things. And we have historian Mark Palin. Uh, so lots of insight from those two gentlemen. But before we get to them, we have a long and short segment to jump into, Alex. So I am going to do the right thing again, and I'm going to let you go first. What have you got for me this week? Okay, I am short trend followers. Is that right? Well, I, I guess James and I should probably be short them too then. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, so commodity trading advisors known as CTAs uh, lost 6.5% about in February uh, for their worst month since 2001, uh, according to Societe Generale. So these CTAs tend to ride the market waves. If gold's going up, they're buying gold. If oil's going down, they're selling oil. Biggest wave has, has been stocks going up, which they were on that trend. But uh, then, uh, then you might have heard about it. Something happened in the beginning of February that made them do uh, not so well. Yes, I, there was something about markets going down a bit, I seem to remember. It, it seems to have gone by the wayside now. I don't think anyone really remembers it, do they? I think so. But it, and, and volatility spiked. And, and it, it's not a surprise they did poorly, but it is interesting to me. It was, it was the worst month in, in so long. Uh, and, and Grant, I, I'm guessing you think they have more bad months ahead. I do. And uh, I've said for the longest time that this, uh, all this trend stuff uh, is fantastic, and, but trends go in both directions and they tend to go for some considerable time. So I think any time you've had a hell of a trend to the upside, you really do need to at least be aware that you can have a similar sort of move to the downside, although the, the downside moves tend to be shorter and sharper than the long grinding uphill markets that we've seen. I guess maybe um, I should be long uh, CTAs then instead of short CTAs if I'm going against well, the trend I'd, followers. I'd give them a little bit more time if I were <laughs> you, Alex. I wouldn't jump back in alongside too quick. Well, my um, my short this week is uh, Donald Trump's place on the world ranking of billionaires. Now, amazingly, for a man who's become the most powerful man in the world, he's dropped 200 places in the Forbes world ranking of billionaires. Now, I, I'm not 100% sure how you rank him on the basis that no one really seems to have a clue how much he's actually worth. Um, apparently, Forbes estimate that he's only worth $3.1 billion now, um, but he's had about half a, uh, half a billion dollars wiped off his wealth by the fall in the value of a lot of his retail property, and that's why I'm short this. This is nothing against President Trump. I'm not Trump bashing because it's just too easy these days, but I, I, I just see this as a good sign that... Um, if Trump's retail property portfolio has taken a half of a billion dollar hit, uh, it suggests to me that this uh, this retail apocalypse that people have been talking about is um, is con- is starting to pick up some speed. You know, we've seen a bunch of um, we've seen a bunch of restaurants go bankrupt in the UK recently. Uh, Jamie Oliver and a lot of celebrity mid-tier restaurants uh, seem to go belly up. So there's something happening in that retail space, uh, and I think that the fact that uh, El Presidente has had half a billion dollars wiped off his wealth for his retail uh, properties. Tells me that there is something afoot in the retail sector. So that is what I am short of this week. Perhaps it was magnanimous of him for, to to take this position and become a civil servant and, and shed some wealth in the meanwhile. Possibly, that is a possibility. I, if we're going to handicap it, I would, um, yeah. I would, I would put the odds fairly long. But uh, hey, listen, what do we know, right? Yeah. You, you, you never really know. All right, now uh, let me jump in with my long then, seeing as you went first on the short side. My long, I am long aircraft seats, uh, mm. something I am acutely and sadly extremely familiar with, uh, but I'm not long the quality of them, very sadly. I'm long the number of them, which is, uh, which is a problem because British Airways announced this week that they are going to add an extra seat in their economy rows on some aircraft. Now, it's very clever what they've done because they, what they did, they announced 
that their new seats would have uh, entertainment screens that are 50% larger than the old ones so that everyone sitting there in the seats can have 50% bigger screen to watch Frozen or the latest superhero movie. What they didn't actually mention is that instead of nine seats across, they're now going to be 10 seats across, which means that the seats are going to be 10% smaller. Now, I don't wow. know at, at what point <laughs> aircraft seats just become too small to actually sit in, but we have to be getting to that place. I mean, it, I, I would love to see the um, the data on the average width of a human being uh, juxtaposed against the average width of an airline seat because at some point they're going to cross over because those two lines are going in completely different directions. So I am long the number of seats in a row, and this is not good news. This is a this is a secret second short, I think. Yeah, I think that the, the middle seat is has somehow become – it is becoming worse and worse and worse. I mean, it's interesting what you said. Like in, in the 1950s, seats were huge and people were tiny compared to, uh, compared right, to now. exactly. Yeah, no, exactly right. Uh. There's, there's a great picture I saw on Twitter this week of a – of an old transatlantic airliner, and it literally had wicker seats and, and you know <laughs> curtains in the in the in the in the uh, cockpit. It was fantastic. Um, but uh, you know, as as progress comes along, I mean, look, I, there's a picture on the internet of the new British Airways cabin, and I have to say, those screens look fantastic. But uh, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of seats going left to right. I tell you, you wouldn't want to be in the two. There are two middle seats in the middle uh, row now. So yes, I am long the number of seats in the average row of aircraft. Meanwhile, I am long Wu-Tang Clan fans. Ah, I know you're going with this. Okay. So uh, just, just for those of you playing along at home, uh, in 2015, uh, there was a young, strapping biotech exec named Martin Scarelli. Uh, yes, there was. Who became infamous for hiking the price of this drug dramatically. Uh, now, later that year, the Wu-Tang Clan, which is the world's best rap group, made a single copy of an album called Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, Screlly bought it at auction for $2 million. So fast forward to today, uh, Screlly's been convicted of financial fraud. He's been ordered to pay back about $7 million uh, by a court. So he has $5 million in cash, and he also has copy, the only copy of Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, which he's also forfeiting as well. So I don't know what's going to happen to that album, but but it, it's good for Wu-Tang Clan fans, even if they never get to hear it. I know I personally am so much more excited just by the the story of this album, which is probably more exciting than the album itself. I, listen, I if you'd asked me to pick the Wu Tang Clan fan out of the Real Vision uh, staff, you would not have been my first choice. I have really? to say, yeah, I would not have had you down as a Wu Tang Clan fan. I, no, I'm 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 big into them. Uh, would you? I think maybe James would is more likely. Or you think or. Uh, no, I think James yeah. is uh, James is more sort of um, I don't know mellow cocktail lounge uh, music. <laughs> How I think. did you yeah, know? A picture of him, his his Twitter profile has a picture of him playing a guitar, but it looks it looks like he's faking it to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Look, you know, I, I, the, the 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 Salvador Mundi painting really did show you what scarce works of art uh, yeah. can do, and I, I guess this is another one of those. Those, you know, the same dynamic, but I, I don't know. I, the, 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 the Salvatore Mundi story still fascinates me, the fact that they can't actually decide whether this thing is even a genuine Leonardo or not just, well, just blows my mind. It's funny you say that because people are actually questioning whether this is genuinely a Wu-Tang Clan album. Now, the Wu-Tang Clan is an amorphous group composed of uh, nine people at first, although there, there are a bunch of offshoots. And some of the members of the Wu-Tang Clan say this isn't really one of their albums because they weren't involved with it. So 
so, so the same issues of authenticity come up. Actually, that, that allowed Benjamin Braffman, Scarly's attorney, to say that the album is probably worthless at this point, which is certainly not true. But, but you really are on the Wu Tang Clan thing. I'm impressed. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm I am impressed. All right, fine. You weren't just making it up for the sake of uh, the sake of the podcast. Oh, no. All right. Well, look, let's move on to our feature this week because um, we've got a lot to get to. The the upcoming trade wars. Um, you know, it's it's been all over the media for the last week and. Uh, I think history is replete with examples of these things and they never seem to end well. Uh, it, it amazes me that we, we go back to these things time and time again. Um, but I think if you look back through history, you'll see that the times that these things happen, the strains are similar, if not the same. Uh, so joining us first to talk about this is Peter Zihan. Peter's, Peter's written a couple of fantastic books, The Accidental Superpower, uh, The Next Generation of American Preeminence and the Coming Global Disorder. And the absent superpower, which uh, the subtitle for that one is the Shale Revolution in a World Without America. And Peter and I spent some time together in Cape Town last week. Uh, he gave a fascinating presentation about some of the really big shifts that are going to happen to the world in the in the next sort of uh, handful of years. So it's a real pleasure to welcome him to the podcast. Peter, thanks for joining us on Adventures in Finance. Pleasure to be here. Um, now, uh, the subject of the day is uh, the potential trade war um, that may be coming our way courtesy of President Trump's latest uh, latest comments on the steel sector. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Is this the beginning of something potentially dangerous or is this a lot of uh, much ado about nothing? Well, when it comes to President Trump, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to tell those two apart. Uh, he's not exactly known for his reputation for consistency. But uh, assuming for the <laughs> moment that we can take him as on his word, because this definitely does play to his core audience, this definitely plays to a lot of the uh, conceptions that, that he holds of the global system. Uh, yes, this is, this is, to be perfectly blunt, the beginning of the end. Uh, the United States has been moving away from the global trade order now for 30 years. And no matter who was president in this cycle, uh, this was going to be the end of the line. With Trump, it's simply happening more quickly and with a lot more drama than it would have under a President Hillary Clinton. Now, you, you, you and I met briefly um, recently in Cape Town, and you had some fascinating stuff to say about what may be a, a secular shift that perhaps people aren't quite getting their heads around in terms of um, a real a real big picture change, the like of which happens once every maybe alternative generation. So perhaps you could just flesh out um, some of your thoughts around around where we are in the cycle and what these changes mean and might look like. Of course. Free trade is not normal. It has never really existed in the global system until very recently. It was only with the end of World War II that the Americans forged an alliance in which they created the free trade order, allowed global access to American markets, and in exchange, everyone else was willing to allow the Americans to fight the Cold War their way. It proved to be a very successful economic and physical alliance, but it was always bound by the Americans' need to have allies to fight the Soviet Union. Because the global security environment changed at the end of the Cold War, you would have expected this system to be rebooted into something else. And the Americans under President Herbert Walker Bush did start that process. But then Americans voted the senior Bush out of office. The Clinton administration never, never bothered to complete the reboot. And then we went through a succession of additional presidents who had less and less interest in foreign affairs writ large until we got to where we are today. So 
everything that makes the global system function from multimodal complex manufacturing supply chains to global energy shipments to global finance is a direct outgrowth of the security policy that the Americans designed 70 years ago that is now 30 years out of date. Uh, what we're seeing now is the Americans finally repositioning themselves strategically, whether you, uh, you think that repositioning is a wise topic or, or a wise uh, path or not is a whole other topic. Uh, but in this repositioning, free trade is no longer part of the picture. Uh, remember that the United States is the least involved economy in the world as a percentage of GDP. Last year, less than 8% of GDP came from exports. About half of that was NAFTA. And courtesy of the Midwest, the United States is a massive agricultural exporter, not importer. And courtesy of the shale revolution, the United States is well on its way to being a net oil exporter as well. And it's already a net exporter of every other form of energy. So I don't mean to suggest that a trade war would be painless. What I'm suggesting is the United States, for the most part, just really doesn't care and the amount of flexibility the Americans have and what might be about to happen is immense. So, so what are people missing um, about this? Because the general feeling is that this is the start of something potentially very dangerous. Um, and, you know, I've read all kinds of commentary in, in the press all around the world, in fact, that, that look at the decisions Trump's making. And I saw somebody say yesterday that it was you know, the single worst decision that any sitting president's ever made. I don't know if it's quite that but but what are people missing and, and where is the disconnect between between how you see things and how the general narrative is playing out there's a general belief around the world particularly deep in europe that the united states is so invested into the global structures because they're global structures that the americans created maintained subsidized that they would never even dream about backing away and unfortunately, that is just absolutely false. Uh, it's, it, and if, if anything, it's delusional because it assumes that the Americans are getting what they originally wanted out of the deal, and they're not anymore. Uh, the, the problem here is that Trump has a really good point. The free trade system, the Bretton Woods system, it was designed for a different purpose, and it's no longer providing the Americans with the strategic flexibility and strength that they originally wanted because the Cold War is over. And if the Americans decide to walk away from that, that's not just NATO or the Japanese and the Korean alliances. No, that's everything that about what makes the global system function. Would this trigger a global recession? Sure. But if you look at anything from the breakdown in the energy markets to what's happening in finance, to especially the demographic picture around the world, we're heading there anyway. The, the real debate in my mind is just about what the proximate cause is going to be because the destination is shockingly similar no matter the path. So I'm curious, Peter, like how, how successful do you think that could be? I, I mean, it just seems to me that the U.S. is so I, – I guess maybe this is the view of, of the Europeans that the U.S. is so um, tied up with the rest of the world. I mean, steel is almost a good example. If the U.S. was forced to make all its own steel, I, I don't see how – many goods that are made in the U.S. and even maybe services that are performed in the U.S. would be possible. Like, how, how could this potentially... Basically, I kind of understand your point about the foundations of free trade, but could this really play out in such a way that the U.S. can back down from, from free trade in a serious way? If you're talking about just flipping a switch and having everything be completely domestically run, no, you're right. There absolutely has to be an adjustment period. Uh, but if you look at one of the things that's been happening is the Chinese system has run into some very serious problems with cost structures. We've already had about a million and a half jobs reshored in the United States 
in the last six years. Another four million have reshored into Mexico. Uh, so the shale revolution changes in the American tax code being the most recent thing. And just the simple fact that the United States is the only advanced country that kept having kids after about 1975 uh, means that the United States is still a solid place to do business. Doesn't mean there's not adjustment period. Uh, we're definitely going to see a lot of steel foundries move back. And until that process is completed, you are going to have a lot of dislocation. Now, think about what this location means in the United States versus everywhere else. The United States only gets 8% of its GDP from exports. The Germans get 50%. The United States produces its own energy. The Germans don't. The United States has the ability, because of a relatively healthy financial model, to invest in these new uh, electric-fired reactors, excuse me, not reactors, foundries, that allows steel foundries to move back to the United States relatively simple, whereas the Germans basically import every part of the supply chain and then just add value at home. Uh, it's going to hurt. There's no argument there. And while only 8% of GDP comes from American exports, that's still 8% of GDP, and losing a big chunk of that will not be fun. But it is not a systemically challenging ratio compared to what you have in a lot of countries in the rest of the world. This is not a path that I personally recommend. I'm an internationalist. But you got to remember that for the Americans, trade has never been about trade. Trade has always been about security. And the Americans have always, since World War II always, been willing to forego economic strength in order to achieve a security gain. In the aftermath of 9-11, if anything, that's more true now than it used to be. So I can really see the American political system, left, right, and center, sucking it up on this topic. Uh, the pressure we're seeing on the Trump administration right now, in my opinion, unfortunately, is kind of the last gasp of the internationalists and the centrists in the political system here that have been struggling for the last couple of years to try to find a new voice and a new narrative to gather back political support for a more engaged America. And I'm fairly sure they're going to lose. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting framework. Um, I'm, I'm curious how how you see that playing out um, in the U.S. just in terms of the U.S. economy. Like, like you mentioned some of the pain and dislocations, but I, I, are, are we going back to a manufacturing-based economy? I, it seems hard for me to believe, but I, I guess I guess that's kind of what you're saying. Well, keep in mind that for the United States, it's always been a major manufacturing country. Uh, and the value added obviously keeps going up. In fact, if you look at the overall volume of American manufacturing by value, it has really not dropped in the last 30 years. It's just required less manpower. So with changes in manufacturing technologies, with this shift from assembly lines to 3D printing, for example, that is kind of custom made for the way that American manufacturing preferences are evolving. So instead of making massive numbers of a certain thing and then distributing it to the wider world, a.k.a. the, uh, the Chinese style, uh, it's more about producing what you need in a just-in-time format for small custom runs where you can co-locate production and consumption. So we're, we're moving in that direction anyway. Uh, changes in the political system under the Trump administration are definitely accelerating that process. Peter, you mentioned China there. Um, what... How did China view this, do you think, and what changes, if any, does it make to their game plan? In my, my view of China is not really 
well meshed with the conventional wisdom. I see China as incredibly insecure right now. I see the political consolidation being done by a government that is terrified that the entire system is about to fall apart. Uh, China, it may not be quite as dependent on international trade as, say, Germany or the Netherlands, but its entire political and social system is bound up in this process of overinvestment, rapid growth, and the ability to dump any product on the international market in order to just keep everyone employed. And the Chinese know very clearly that if the global system breaks down, they have an energy crisis, a financial crisis, a demographic crisis, and an export crisis all at the same time. And there is no way that they can survive as a unified export-led system in that new environment. And so what the Xi government has been doing is been preparing the Chinese people for a system where economic growth doesn't happen, where uh, famine might actually start to eke back in at the edges with the Japanese become a lot more aggressive at containing Chinese power. And in essence, we go back to something that's a little bit more similar to the closed off Chinese power that we had during the Mao era. That requires political consolidation. And that's what everything has been about for the last two years, starting with the anti-corruption campaign, moving towards uh, Xi nominating himself to succeed himself back in November, and now with the uh, removal of the term limits. Uh, Because of that, the Chinese have by far been the most circumspect in dealing with the Trump administration during this latest tariff crisis. I mean, the American, excuse me, the Europeans are beating their chests because they can't believe that it's real. And it kind of has the feeling of an overreaction from a people who are so used to it being about them that they can't comprehend that everything that has made their system possible is actually because of someone like Trump. Uh, China takes a very different angle. They've got a much more realistic understanding of the situation, and they don't want to do anything to provoke him. Because every month that goes by that the global system can hold together, they have another month to complete this transition so they have a, are in a better position for when the rubber finally meets the road. Peter, let me just ask in closing, um, if we do see a, a serious walk away from free trade by the U.S. and, and maybe by other countries uh, as well, who has the most to lose right now? <laughs> uh, wow, it all depends on your point of view. <laughs> uh, keep in mind that if the United States really does back away, you're going to have a series of significant military conflicts among countries that will have no choice but to look out for their own interests. That will affect trade lines, that will affect energy supply and manufacturing all on their own. So you're really looking down at the, the breakdown of the global order in every way that you can imagine. Um, Who's going to suffer the most? Well, there's kind of a competition there between uh, the Europeans on one side and East Asians on the other. Uh, The European Union is not possible without the global trade network because they can't, at a minimum, keep the lights on without global trade. And the EU was designed specifically to be a manufacturer's exporter. And if they lose that capacity, you're talking about something that is far more serious than merely a sovereign debt crisis. You're talking about a banking crisis in which finance, as we understand it, collapses. Uh, The United States allowed every country to basically run their own financial sector as part of the Breadwood system. That's generated a lot of imbalances across the European system. Italy, of course, is the worst, but they're not the only one that is probably past the point of no return. So if you remove that security overwatch, 
every pillar of European success of the last 40 years basically falls apart in pretty short order. And the Europeans have to go back to looking like Europeans at the same time that the Russians come knocking on the door. That will generate a political culture in places like Sweden, in places like Poland, in places like Germany that has a lot more in common with the world before 1929 than it does with the world now. And that is the end of Europe as we currently understand it. Uh, East Asia, just as dependent on energy imports, almost as dependent on manufacturers exports. And they're going to be facing something similar. Uh, the advantage that the Asians have is because it's more a maritime environment. Even if they start shooting at each other, you're probably not looking at, uh, you know, outright invasions. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be ugly, but these cultures don't face the same systemic shocks that the Europeans do. They face a lot more severe economic shocks. So again, we don't Asia, as we currently understand it, is something that is completely dependent upon the Americans' um, even-keeled nature. If you're looking for specific countries, Korea is probably the one with the furthest to fall. Uh, here's a country that is the world's fifth largest trading power right now, and it came from nothing back in 1950. So without that global structure, the, the, the Koreans cannot participate in even a regional system some proxy power of one of their neighbors. The most likely candidate for that would be Japan. And that's, if there's one country out there that the Koreans would rather not partner with, it's Japan. So they'd have to swallow a lot of pain and cultural pride just to even consider it. Uh, on the European side, uh, Germany is by far the one that's going to be looking the worst. Just keep in mind that the Germans have proven on multiple occasions in the past that they are capable of reinventing themselves in a very short period of time but most of their neighbors do not like what those reinventions look like. Peter, um, I have to ask you one more question. Sorry to um, drag this sure. out, but um, uh, the, the Italian elections, uh, obviously it's still new. We haven't really seen the <laughs> complete uh, end of that. But but in your experience uh, and based on your thoughts going into that, is this as big a seismic shift as the, the, the sort of knee-jerk press reaction would have you believe? Are you a bit more moderate or, or perhaps it's even worse than the press would have you believe? I've got to admit that Italian internal politics are a guilty pleasure of mine. I mean, it's right up there with <laughs> Cougar Town, if you're familiar with that show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like this, Italy is not a normal country. Um, but the, the important thing here is not so much that, that the five-star movement got the single largest amount of votes. Uh, five Star is a, a traditional protest party. They've got very little intellectual capital in there. It's not clear that they're actually going to be the ones forming the government. The two things that matter to me the most are the complete gutting of the Democrats, which got their worst showing ever, and basically the, their destruction as a political force within the Italian system. Uh, second, the fact that uh, the Northern League came in second. So here you've got a party that is not simply anti-Euro. Until very recent, they were unabashed separatists. Uh, this is the end of the Italian Republic as a constructive part of the European family. And this is more than enough to prevent Italy from signing on to anything that the French and the Germans do for the next couple of years. You couple that with the fact that the Germans finally have a government and are just about to be handed their first crisis, we're going to know just how well the Germans are going to be able to handle this within about a month. Uh, it does not look good. 
And if you can't have the three big countries within Europe, even on the same page, uh, there is no hope that the Europeans have in order to forge some sort of new regional reality without the United States. Fantastic. Peter, that sounds like a conversation that we will have to pick up maybe in a month when we see how this plays out. But look, for the meantime, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure you've noticed, but there's a lot going on. There, there sure is. I, I, I hope you managed to shake off the flu. But please, uh, before you go, let the listeners know a little bit about where they can find you and follow you and all that good stuff, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. My name is Peter Zion. The website where you can sign up for newsletters is zion.com. That's spelled Z-E-I-H-A-N.com. And I'm the author of two books. The first is The Accidental Superpower, which starts with the shape of the world as we understand it, how it's all breaking down, how it came to be, and where we're going to go from here. The second book is The Absent Superpower. It launches off with the shale revolution, explains how it's re- fabricating the American industrial experience and the major wars that will erupt around the world as a result. Fantastic. Peter, once again, thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Finance. Absolute pleasure. You guys take care. Well, you know, having having listened to uh, Peter in Cape Town last week, um, he gave a presentation that really actually shocked and surprised a lot of people talking about this huge change that he believes is happening. Uh, you know, it's, it's a secular change. It's the pendulum starting to go back the other way. And, it, you know, it, it, will, it will surprise a lot of people if Peter's right. And I think a lot of people will push back against his ideas. But I think, you know, when he talks about the fact that free trade is an anomaly, um, you know, history backs him up on this. And we just happen to be at a point in time where there are a lot of stresses on, on, on both sides of, of the trade uh, table. And everyone's going to be looking out for their own interests. So, it, you know, I, I think there's an awful lot in what Peter says. I think uh, his words are absolutely worth heeding and thinking about. And, and I'll add to that that his books uh, are definitely worth reading because they're both excellent. So here's a fascinating personal list. It's a very provocative argument. Um, I guess I'm kind of an optimist by nature. So my, my hope is that free trade is, is not a trend like... Uh, you know, sanitizing medical equipment is not a trend. Uh, it, it just seems to be clearly the best option, and I don't really don't, don't think that's a political statement. Um, but he makes a compelling case, and 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 there certainly is something to this this big backlash we've been seeing. It's it's not just one person uh, up there making these statements. It, it has a lot of resonance uh, on and in both political parties. I might add. Well, look, these things tend to need to get broken before they get fixed. That's, that's the thing that worries me. Yeah, it, it's the kind of decisions that, that that trade wars spur are needed, but absent the trade war, it's hard to get the kind of votes you need to, to push certain stuff through. So uh, I'm watching it very carefully. But, but you know, we should move on to our next guest. Yeah, because he this uh, next guest is Mark Palin. He's a historian at the University of Exeter and the author of The Conspiracy of Free Trade. And I think he'll give us a, a good sense of how this compares to other uh, talk of trade wars in the past and, and how those panned out. So, Mark, welcome to Adventures in Finance. Uh, thank you for having me. So you've looked at a lot of trade conflicts uh, very closely. If there's one uh, main lesson you can draw from them, what would it be? Uh, that that it's, it can make for very popular politics amongst uh, certain segments of the public uh, at certain points, and at particularly times of, of extreme populism. Um, and that it also uh, tends to backfire uh, when, when they're implemented. Um, I think that's one of the big lessons to be learned here and, and uh, uh, that apparently um, needs to be reiterated again. So. 
Uh, so, so with that in mind, maybe you could walk us through uh, a couple of a couple specific times when trade policies were changed and, and tariffs were enacted, and, and talk through some of the consequences there. Well, one of the things we, we tend to forget now is that uh, you know we we look at Matt, at Trump and the common way of looking at Trump and his America First protectionism is, and that, that this is some sort of anomaly within GOP politics, that we think of the Reagan revolution and, and Republican Party as the party of free markets and free trade. But uh, one of the things that I've been looking at and, and explore uh, in, in my book and elsewhere is, is that if you actually go back to the, the origins of the Republican Party uh, and trace it through most of its history, it is the party of protectionism, of, of America first. And this played out not only uh, in American trade policy, but because of the connections between trade uh, and foreign relations that these overlapped in all sorts of interesting ways with how the United States interacted with its its neighbors, its allies, its enemies. Um, so if you go back to, say, the late 19th century after the, the Civil War, uh, the, the Republican Party turns itself, uh, turns away from, you know, it was the party of anti-slavery. Uh, it puts itself largely as the, the uh, party of protectionism. And uh, this leads to all sorts of uncomfortable confrontations with its, its closest trading partners uh, might sound familiar today. And that one of the big ones is uh, Canada, which was still very much part of the British Empire at the time. Um, but uh, the United States and the Canadians would get into this uh, series of tariff wars across the late 19th century. And uh, this is going to have all sorts of ramifications for uh, the unfriendly relations, if you will, between these two uh, nations, these to contiguous territories. Um, so, and, th- and this is going to play out in, in interesting ways as far as um, how the United States and the British, you know, we think of this special relationship between the United States and, and Britain and its empire and Canada even. Uh, this is far from this story. In the late 19th century, the Party of Protections and the Republican Party uh, was very, uh, uh, very much against the British, very much against the Canadians, and this played out in its tariff policies. So they used tariffs as a way of, of punishing and, and retaliating and expressing its disgust and anger uh, towards the Canadians throughout the late 19th century. And the Canadians responded in kind. Uh, and so it made for very tense and, uh, relations to the point where uh, frequently disputes over even uh, who had control over fisheries rights in certain parts of uh, North America uh, nearly led to war. So, I mean, that, that's one example from the late 19th century. You could, you could look at the, uh, uh, the ongoing trade disputes in the 1880s and 1890s between the Italians and the French. Um, this ended up, uh, uh, because of the Italian turn to protections of the 1870s, uh, the French uh, decided to retaliate in kind, uh, and this culminated in a series of trade wars uh, to the point that uh, these disputes ended up, Italy turned its you know, trade attentions to, to Germany and Austria. And so there's a really interesting realignment of uh, uh, geopolitics that resulted from these trade wars that uh, laid some interesting groundworks of alliances leading up to the First World War. Um, and of course, the most famous uh, moments for this is, is following uh, the Great Depression that, that struck in 1929 in the United States um, as a way to protect its, its farmers and certain industries that it passed an extreme protective tariff in response to this uh, the Smoot-Hawley Tariff of 1930, uh, which, however, unintentionally ended up sparking a massive trade war with America's trading partners, um, and this tit-for-tat uh, trade war that would uh, develop from there uh, shrunk global trade at a time when it should have been expanding, uh, and it made the Great Depression uh, even worse. 
Mark, do, do you think the the, the Smoot Hawley era? You think the best analog for this? Because I think people are trying to figure out a roadmap how this might go. When you look back, is that the most likely, or is there another episode in history that you think provides a more accurate potential roadmap for what happens from here? I, I, there, there are certain lessons there, and I think there's some most sensible connections with the, the rise of populism and the extreme nationalism that we're seeing today, and uh, coupled with this uh, increasing turn to economic nationalism. Um, but I, I, I tend to actually think that the late 19th, early 20th centuries are, are, are a little more illustrative of this, where because um, we're you know we, we had a great recession, but we didn't have a great depression. The late 19th century was the first great depression. Uh, so there's already I think there's uh, um, and, the, and the ways that the the United States and the other powers were responding to this. And in fact, if you look at who uh, the leaders right now, these these nationalists, these economic nationalist leaders are looking to for their political inspiration back in time, you know, uh, Donald Trump. Who is he quoting? He's he's quoting. Abraham Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, William McKinley, these late 19th, early 20th century politicians for, for his inspiration uh, when he's enacting these America first uh, protectionist policies. He's not looking to Herbert Hoover or to Hawley or to Smoot. And I think that's telling. And, and the same goes for, for Theresa May. She's, she's not looking to uh, uh, the paragon of, 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 of free trade of the mid-19th century or post-1945. Her, her political idol or political hero is Joseph Chamberlain, who was the Early, early 20th century leader of the protectionist movement in Britain, the tariff reform movement, uh, this attempt to, to overthrow and overturn the British free trade system that was in place at the time. Uh, so even if you look at the, the leaders today, who are the people that they're looking to, who are the political leaders that they're looking to for inspiration? It's, it's these, these political heroes from the late 19th, early 20th centuries more than uh, it is from uh, the late 1920s or uh, 1930s. You know, we just spoke to someone who kind of saw the recent move toward free trade that we've seen over maybe the past 40 or 50 years um, as, as, as maybe not, not a forward march of history forward, but kind of a specific reaction to the Cold War. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, if from a historian's perspective, if we've just, the trade has become freer and freer and freer every year, or if there are these periods where we get more free, less free, more free, less free, whether it's, um, you know, what, what, what kind of a historical movement uh, free trade is? Yeah, well, I think in a way this ties into the, the, to the last question, which, which I, I suppose I only uh, partially answered, and that is the, the post-1945 era of, of freer trade and free markets in which the United States sort of led the way in trying to open up the world's markets as, as one, you know, one of the lessons that was supposedly learned after the Great Depression and, and the, the Second World War uh, is that greater economic integration is the way forward. And, and, but this is actually the exception to the modern historical rule. If you look back over the last 200, 250 years, uh, this, this, this relatively temporary moment of 40 or 50 years of, of freer trade as led by the United States after the Second World War uh, is a bit of an anomaly. That the majority of this time, it was, it was um, the Western world adopted protectionist policies. And so in that sense, too, we're seeing perhaps a return to what might be considered the status quo from a longer historical perspective. Um, I think this goes back to the last question, too. Uh, um, rather than you know, what we think of as the United States as this leader of free trade and free markets that we, we, we do today, uh, at least until the rise of Trump, um, actually throughout the, I'd say, last part of the 19th century, the first part of the 20th century, um, the Republican Party in particular, but Americans in general, uh, were very suspicious of free trade. 
it was shrouded in conspiracy, right? So Britain was the, the, the free trade hegemon from the 1840s until the early 1930s. Uh, it was the juggernaut of industry. It uh, uh, so it was also seen often as a threat to these industrializing, developing states like the United States, like Germany, like Russia. And in the case of the United States, uh, the fear and hatred of, the, of Britain at this time in the late 19th century uh, and into their 20th was so great that um, uh, you have these remarkable conspiracy theories that, that uh, start festering. And I, I, it was really interesting to see, too, how, how Donald Trump has, however unwillingly, uh, kind of resurrected and embraced the, these free trade conspiracy theories, uh, you know, his, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership that, th- that he pulls us out of as soon as he got into office, right? The reason why he did that, at least the reason he gave, was that he saw that this was, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was somehow some ploy by China to secretly uh, undermine American markets. Um, you know, the way that free trade is used as a dirty word and globalism is a dirty word now, and, and it strikes me as a very much more similar to the late 19th or 20th century uh, American political economy and, and, and political debates at the time. Um, so in that sense, the pattern that we see now uh, is, is perhaps more of a, a return to um, a protectionist status quo that existed before the United States adopted free trade policies in the 1930s and 1940s. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what other emotions mark times of protectionism. What, what you know, is, is there something in the public discourse? Is, is there, um, you know, is it driven by these kind of conspiracy theories, as you say? I mean, what, what, what kind of happens within the public psyche that leads to these moments, do you think? I, I think protectionism and economic nationalist policies in general are just so much better at tapping into uh, emotions than you know, the cosmopolitanism of, of free trade and free markets. Um, it's it's easier, you know. We, can, we I mean, prime examples today, but these are also you know ideas of outsourcing and stuff. These stretch back to the to the you know the nineteenth century as well. And and those um, the, the economic nationalist policies policies are usually become more popular and, and adopted by, by politicians. One, during election years, we've seen this. It's not just Donald Trump who was doing this, right? Bernie Sanders ran on a protectionist platform. You can go back through all sorts of, you know, Obama um, would take pop shots at China during the presidential election campaigns. Uh, and this goes back to, so it's a very popular way of tapping in because it's very easy to point to uh, uh, yeah, sectors of, of the popul- population that feel like they've been, um, left out of, of globalization, right? People who've lost jobs, say, to outsourcing, you can tap into this very easily by saying, uh, we're going we're gonna to fix this through protectionism. And this is something that has been used by politicians, particularly Republican politicians, for, for, for what, 100, 100 plus years. Uh, and this is often tied closely to, to uh, anti-immigration policies and, and, and uh, scapegoating of, of, of foreigners, of, of of non-citizens, uh, something like we're once again seeing on the rise, not just in the United States, but across the globe. So, Mark, we've obviously uh, famously seen Trump tweet a couple of days ago, the trade wars are good. Is, is, there, is there an extent to which they are good or, or good for certain, certain people, certain industries, certain countries? Um, yeah, if you ask a lot of people, the, the, the immediate response, the knee-jerk response is, is, is a strong no. And I think uh, this, this is also a really interesting Parallel to, I mean, war is war in some sense, and and uh, if we're not at economic war, we're we're in uh, military conflicts. This is often the kind of realist approach to these 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 issues, and uh, this has become more nuanced. So if you go back to the the years leading up to the First World War, 
uh, opponents of military conflict used to always say, it became very popular, in fact, that nobody wins in war. Um, Norman Angel, this, this British free trader, he became very famous for writing this book called The Great Illusion that was published in 1910. And it created this amazing phenomenon of Norman Angelism in which he put forth the argument that the world was too integrated and too interconnected uh, to make war beneficial to anyone, including the so-called winner of any sort of military conflict. Um, this became very popular. But after the First World War, these, these opponents of conflict had to, to look back uh, and, and realize that actually some people do, some industries do win in war. Uh, and this is the munitions makers, the arms manufacturers, what we now call the military industrial complex. And so if we look at that in, the, in that context to the case of trade wars, there are going to be a few winners among a handful of, of industries uh, in one nation or another. In the case of, of the United States, it, it'll probably be the, the steel and aluminum producers who might see an uptick in domestic sales. Um, they might be able to, to raise their prices a bit because of the decrease in competition with, with foreign imports. Uh, and this could be at least a temporary boon for, for these industries that uh, produce steel and aluminum and other uh, in, uh, goods that are going to be part of this, uh, this tariff list. Um, and I think you know the U.S. government potentially could gain a little bit in revenues. Uh, but I think modern history suggests that there's going to be far more losers uh, and that the consumers in all countries involved. Uh, and I think in this global age that we live in, this is just about everyone at this point are going to be the big losers here. Uh, and if history is any guide, the poorest among us are going to feel the hit the most with the sharp increase in the cost of, of domestically produced goods, of imported goods that will inevitably follow in the wake of, of a tariff war between the world's most developed nations. And, uh, you know, people like Donald Trump, uh, they, they can pay for the, 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 you know, the extra cost in goods, but for some people, prices of Campbell's soup is going to be really, really important, and uh, it could lead to some, some hungry families out there. Uh, obviously, this is also outside of the steel and aluminum producers in the United States. Uh, those who are dependent upon these goods, uh, you're going to see a dislocation in these sectors um, Think about the, the steel using manufacturers, the big three auto companies, uh, producers of farm equipment that, that, you know, that they really rely on steel and aluminum. You know, their stock values could drop. So the losers are going to far outnumber the winners, but there will be a few. Although, to be fair, I should point out, I'm, I'm just guessing from your, the fact you're at University of Exeter and judging by your accent, you, you might be a beneficiary of free trade yourself. Uh, or, or at least the, the free movement of people. <laughs> relatively safe with people. No, I'm, I'm just I'm curious what what it's what it's like being in Britain now when you, we are seeing that movement happen in Britain as well to a certain extent. Yeah, it's 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 one of these great contradictions, isn't it? That uh, you know, on the one hand you keep hearing this global Britain, uh, Britain's going to be the new free trade juggernaut like it once was back in the mid 19th century, late 19th century. At the same time, it, you, you know, being an immigrant in a country that's that's saying this, I, I'm experiencing firsthand and seeing it amongst others how. Uh, this is in large part of a backlash against the free movement of people that is often seen as the flip side to free trade. Um, and the, the xenophobia and the, and the restrictions on, on uh, the ability to, to, to work in this country, um, and of course this is being um, playing out in all sorts of other countries uh, in Europe and, and of course the United States. And uh, uh, So it's, it's a really remarkable thing to see, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, to say the least, it's, it's troubling. Uh, well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, where can people find find more of your thoughts about this and, and other stuff? Well, they, they can uh, uh, 
Uh, take a look at my, my book, uh, The Conspiracy of Free Trade, which explores the, the, the rise of the American free trade movement uh, and its conflict within the Republican Party and, uh, and how this played out in American foreign relations in the late 19th century. Um, they can also follow me on Twitter at uh, M.W. Palin. Okay, very good. Mark, thanks for joining us today. All right, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think that was really interesting because there there is something going on that's not just about steel. Obviously, there not a lot of Americans work in the steel industry. There's something going on that that has to do with populism, and and you know we talked about Italy with with uh, Peter, and th there's there's something in the water right now that is is remarkably similar to things we've seen in the past, at least in America, uh, and it could give us some insight into where we're going. Well, I think so. And to, to, to reiterate the point I made earlier, you know, these things happen and they tend to, things have to get kind of nasty before they get fixed. We've already seen this week the resignation of Gary Cohn, which, which I don't think can come as a huge surprise to anybody. But, uh, but it, it's the personalities involved in these dynamics that are, that are important to pay attention to because guys like Lighthouser and Navarro, who are the, the two chief China-facing members of the Trump administration have very, very uh, stark uh, feelings towards the Chinese. Um, if you read some of the books that, um, that these guys have written, they'll leave you in no doubt as to how they view the Chinese. And so, you know, this becomes, uh, it becomes a battle of egos. It becomes a point scoring exercise with people trying to, particularly as we go into midterms, uh, people trying to score points amongst their faithful. So, it is important to watch these. It's important to watch the people, and it's important to to watch the headlines because uh, you know this is this is really just beginning. I, I think this trade war story is going to increase before it uh, ebbs. So I think we need to watch it very, very carefully. Yeah, and I just want to highlight one one thing that Peter's uh, sorry that Mark said, which is it, it, not the kind of issue we generally talk about on the show, but it really does hurt the lowest class the most. The, the people who ostensibly are supposed to be helped by populist policies are really hurt by the, the cost of uh, beer and, and soup and everything that comes in cans becoming more expensive. So it, it's, it's, it's iron, ironic, uh, but it's, it's sad as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, once again, we've reached the end of another Adventures in Finance. Amazing how fast the time flies. Um, but before we go, uh, obviously, you can all join in with this by now. We need to leave you with our legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and trade responsibly. Next week, we'll be back with a segment on something that's dear to my heart, which is the future of the advertising business. This is something I've written about a couple of times in the last year, um, and uh, the catastrophic WPP results that came in last week, uh, I, I must say, were no real surprise to me, but I think this is uh, the thin end of the wedge, so there's a lot to talk about there. Between now and then, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show or anything else you've heard on Events in Finance, then please, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. I would love to hear some voice notes, by the way. I, I don't think I've, I've heard one recently. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's nice when they come through. Yeah, send, send us a voice note. Just re record a voice note on your phone and just email, email it to us. No? Yeah, just say hi. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, uh, in addition to leaving a voice note, you can leave a review uh, on iTunes and also please subscribe. You really do need to leave those reviews. I mean, the 
chaos that's unleashed when the reviews don't get left is just uh, it's, it's just getting impossible to keep up with. Uh, if you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course podcast episodes, then do follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging around Facebook and LinkedIn to search for Real Vision. You might be hanging around. I'm not hanging around. I'm not hanging around going on here, mister. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. I am at Aces Rose. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's it from us. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips and ads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com